Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not to entertain, but to educate, teach, context. Call me at 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me at Jim Kramer. We really needed that good but not great non-farm payroll number we got at 830 today. This market's got huge headwinds blowing from Washington. Everything from the trade wars to the inability to get a NAFTA replacement deal done with Mexico and Canada to the Federal Reserve's lack of sensitivity to the strong dollar. Put it all together, and the industrial economy just can't catch a break. And that's why the market exploded higher on that robust employment figure. Dow gaining 373 points, S&P soaring 1.42%, NASDAQ surging 1.40%. Well, it didn't hurt, of course, as I talked about a week, that we were oversold. Look, I know the unemployment rate is down to 3.5%, lowest in nearly 50 years. But it has to do with the makeup of the economy. The manufacturing side of the ledger is just not doing that well. The weakness in manufacturing hiring gives Fed Chief Jay Powell all the ammo he needs to justify cutting the federal funds rate. That might make it more in sync with the traditional curve of low short rates to higher long ones. Normally you wouldn't expect the Fed to hit the accelerator with the jobless rate this low, but wages are still stagnant and there's no inflation to speak of. Basically, if Powell's asking himself why not cut rates, the answer is, well, there's no reason not to. A rate cut could deliver some much-needed help to the ailing auto industry because car loans are priced off short-term rates, but also result in a weaker dollar, giving our manufacturers a big boost against their foreign competitors. Against, uh, again, why should the Fed cut? Because right now the 10-year Treasury is at 1.52. Federal funds rate, the overnight rate, is at 2. That's nuts. Powell should be taking his cue from longer-term interest rates here. That's what he should be doing, although he seems a bit oblivious to this very obvious signal, as are most of the commentators who come on TV who think that I'm wrong and he's wrong, and I agree with the president. Now, uh, maybe if we weren't in this trade war with China, the Fed wouldn't need to cut. But that's not the world we live in. I think the president is right when he says the Fed funds rate is too high for no real reason. Remember, a year ago, the Fed tightened aggressively to get out ahead of potential inflation. 
They should do the same thing right now to get out of the head of potential slowdown. Be just with the same alacrity that they had the other way. That's what they should be doing. This matters because next week's game plan is all about China, both its economy and the trade talks with our government. We know the tariffs have hurt the Chinese economy, but we don't know how much. The Communist Party of China doesn't necessarily give you a full report. They do put out numbers, though. And on Monday, we'll see their Purchasing Managers Index, or PMI, reading. This is an important gauge of manufacturing. When our PMI disappointed earlier this week, well, it crushed our averages. Now, we don't know how much the Chinese fiddle with their own figures, but expect them to be accurate directionally, at least, meaning they're a good way to detect some trends, uh, even if the absolute numbers, let's just call them dubious. I'm betting the Chinese PMI will be as bad as the Communist Party lets it be, which is probably not going to be so good. This reading is extra important because it sets the stage for the trade talks on Thursday, okay? Part of the, uh, today's rally can be traced back to Larry Kudlow on another network. He's the president's chief economic advisor, who said that there might be some good things coming out of these negotiations. He just said it like that. The market exploded. Now, personally, after doing uh, homework, uh, I'm a little more circumspect. Sure, the Chinese might buy some commodities from us, show of good faith. But the president's over that. He wants real structural change. No more intellectual property theft. No more forced joint ventures. No more fentanyl flooding into this country illegally. And those aren't just the table. Look, those are table stakes before anything's get going here. I simply don't believe these substantive issues will be solved. China would rather suffer the tariffs than fundamentally restructure the economy. So come October 15th, I expect the U.S. will go ahead with its plan to raise tariffs on $250 billion for the Chinese goods from 25 to 30%. And frankly, after today's rally, I'm not so sure the market is ready for the next round of hikes. No, I think it's going to surprise the negative. Beyond China, we have some important earnings next week. Domino's and Levi's report on Tuesday. Oh, these stocks have been suffering, right? Uh, now, I think they've actually priced in disappointment, although they bounced back a little bit recently, and I wish they hadn't before they went to the quarters to report. I think Domino's has been hurt by all those third-party online delivery services. The CEO came, said the same thing on our show. And, and they can afford to lose fortunes building their businesses because they're playing with venture capital money. They don't report yet. The best thing Domino's had going for it versus the competition was its fantastic delivery network. That's no longer much of an advantage. However, yesterday, Wedbush, in a totally prescient report, uh, said that uh, they argued that much of the negativity is it already baked into this stock? They also called into question whether the likes of Postmates, DoorDash can continue to afford losing money at the pace that they're losing it. Will this be the quarter where Domino's delivers? Let's hear what they have to say. I would love to be able to say, you know what? It's over, but I know that the, it, it's not. Uh, I own a restaurant and a bar, and I know it's not. But this stock has gotten cheaper. As for Levi's, the apparel business has gotten rough, especially jeans. That's a category very promotional. Again, though, the worst might be baked in. I, I don't think there's much downside to Levi's, but I have no idea what might drive it higher if the department stores that carry the merchandise are st- still struggling, and we know they are. Not much happens on Wednesday. It's the solemn Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, unless it, usually a, it's a day when analysts like to go light on anything market-moving. Companies don't report. However, we do get mortgage application numbers, and these have been real stands out of late, and every time they've been good, they've moved, out the, whole, they've moved the whole housing sector up, led by Lennar. Uh, mortgage rates make housing stocks in fuego. Thursday, in addition to the trade talks, we also hear from Delta Airlines. If you're a frequent flyer, it's hard to believe that the airlines are in great shape. Nearly every flight's extremely full. But the industry's got uh, some competitive route structures these days, and competition's always been the bane for the airlines. Once they start competing, prices come down. 
and that crushes margins. The transports in general have been an outrageously bad place to be. I don't expect Delta's quarter to change anyone's mind. Hormel also holds an analyst meeting on Thursday. This re-energized food company, best known for spam, has done an amazing job of reinventing itself with the acquisition of Skippy's, Applegate Farms, and Justin's. It's been a long time since Hormel was just spam. I think you can buy it ahead of the meeting. Oh, arguably love a pullback, but this feels a lot like uh, McCormick. Finally, on Friday, Wendy's has an incredibly important analyst meeting. I think they'll be able to explain why they're entering the ultra-competitive cutthroat breakfast business, something that was greeted with surprising negative trading. Wow, it's stock got hammered. I bet the meeting moves the needle back. I'd be a buyer of Wendy's ahead of the analyst meeting. Bottom line, I know earnings season is kicked off already, but we're still in the slow dribble phase, as you can tell. The week after next will be insane. Better batten down the hatches and get ready for companies to adjust their numbers going into a new round of tariffs that, because of hopium, they're most likely unprepared for. Andrew in Michigan. Andrew! Hey, Jim. What's going on? Thanks for taking my call. Well, you know, I'm just focused on uh, trying to figure out what's going on with the trade talks. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Hey, so I've got a quick question for you. I bought mm-hmm. some lamb research about a year ago, mm-hmm. um, and it's just been on fire. It's up about 85%. Right. Just wondering what your thoughts are on selling or if you think it's Okay, we need Channel Trust to own, we own a big slug of it. Why? Because when Tim Archer came in there, he exercised a tremendous amount of discipline, bought a huge amount of stock back, and the cycle is back. And the equipment spend cycle, and that means lamb goes higher still. Uh, it's inexpensive, too. It's got a 2% yield. Bill in Illinois. Bill! Hey, Jim. Yeah. I'm a first-time caller from the suburbs of Chicago. Okay, love Chicago. Need hey, Montgomery I wanted to, play to know how to trade Altria over the next four weeks and through their third-quarter earnings release. I expect earnings to be in line. However, not sure if they will take an impairment charge for their... $12.8 billion investment in Jewel now or wait till their orders push it till later this year. The stock has lost $15 billion since the start of the year, and also the stock lost $62 billion right. since in market cap since June. Well, why would you want to own it? But what, what, what what's, what's the catalyst here? Are people going to start smoking again? I mean, I mean, I think that what they did with Jewel, remember, I would rather have my kids drool than Jewel. Uh, what they did with, with Jewel was not right, and I'm trying to be uh, diplomatic about it. No, I don't be diplomatic about it. They tried to hook a whole new generation on tobacco, and I don't have a reason to, that I want to own the stock. I got real growth stocks that don't kill anybody. I think that's a better theory on why you should invest. And am I angry about what happened with Jewel? I watched Carl Quintanilla's documentary, and you bet I am. And I haven't stopped seeing it ever since it. FDA, you let us down, by the way. All right, Washington is a big headwind right now. So fasten up and get ready for companies to have to adjust to numbers lower if these talks don't work. And I don't think they will. Oh, made money tonight. From cleaning to cooking and everything in between, Clorox has its hands on some of the world's biggest brands. But does it still have the growth to wipe up on Wall Street? Or could it become a stain on your portfolio? I'll mind the company after sales. Then can Stitch Fix still dress to impress despite its drop following earnings? I'm sitting down with the CEO to see what the, how to get this stock reignited. And the REITs have been roaring. Is it time to circle the wagons around an investment in space? I'm going to give you my take. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag MadTweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com. 
or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the summer, we had a big rotation with money fleeing from the high-flying growth stocks and only neglected staple names, especially the defensive consumer packaged goods plays. They call them CPGs. But there was one stock that got left behind. That stock was Clorox. Yep, after lagging the averages for most of the year, Clorox has spent the last few months rolling over, rolling over to the point where this serial outperformer is now in the red for the year. I'm not used to seeing that. Are you? You know I've been a big believer in this company. I think it's got a great house of brands and terrific management. It's led by uh, CEO Ben O'Dor. I've been on the show many times. So when Clorox held its analyst meeting earlier this week, I hope they tell a better story, something that would give people a reason to buy the stock again. Long story short, that is not what happened. The analyst meeting wasn't a positive catalyst at all. It was a negative one. Clorox actually cut their sales and earnings forecast for the current fiscal year. I think the stock would have gotten hit a lot harder if it hadn't already pulled back hard going into the event. But it still slipped two bucks on Wednesday before falling another three dollars yesterday after the analysts who follow this thing cut their estimates en masse. But today the stock caught fire, erasing yesterday's decline and then some. And you know what? I think it's not done going higher. Yep, in spite of that unexpectedly downbeat analyst day, I think this is the time to start buying Clorox, although I wouldn't buy it all at once. Why should you even consider buying the stock of a company just guided down? Because to me, that bearish update feels like what I call a kitchen sink event, a cleansing moment where management resets, that's the Wall Street term, resets expectations by getting all the potential negatives out in front of you. If this market stays volatile, Clorox could be exactly the kind of stock that works. 
First, though, let's go over these negatives because they're in control right now and because there's actually good reasons why the stock's been a stinker. The last couple of quarters were less than stellar. In May, Clark supported a slight top and bottom line miss and modestly cut their full year forecast, blaming promotional activity in wipes, along with weakness in bags and wraps. A lot of competition here in this market, okay? At the beginning of August, they gave you a messy quarter with genuinely disappointing guidance including lower-than-expected forecasts for organic revenue growth and earnings per share. Once again, they struggled in certain categories, and this time management suggested that the second half of 2019 would continue to be rough. While Clorox told you they believe in their strategy, investing in the brands to maintain market share and pricing power, they also told you not to expect any pickup in sales until next year. Which brings us to Wednesday, when the analyst meeting rolled around and Clorox threw the kitchen sink at you, wiped, I hope, by some of these great products. The company meaningfully cut their forecast for 2020 fiscal year, a forecast that they, they, they just issued two months ago. Hmm, suboptimal. Rather than flat to 2% sales growth, they're talking about a low single-digit decline to up 1%. That's really not great. Although uh, none of that weakness is organic. They left their organic growth forecast unchanged, and that's what people really look at in this business. Clark's also lowered its gross margin guidance instead of flat to down slightly. They're saying it's going to be down slightly. They also took their earnings forecast. The old midpoint was 640, now 615, down uh, appreciably. So how the heck can I look at this and tell you it's time to buy the stock? I mean, have I lost my mind here? No, I think I've just done homework. First of all, you need to understand that Clorox has now reset expectations. I think the numbers are now low enough that they can be beaten. Maybe it's even classic Cupid under promise and overdeliver. We've seen this pattern before. Do you know in January, McCormick cut their forecast, stock got trounced, then turned out to be a fabulous buying opportunity? Since then, McCormick's raised its guidance twice. Stock has caught fire. Nobody even remembers that they disappointed nine months ago. Apple did the same thing. Remember when they issued that putrid guidance right at the beginning of the year? Well, I mean, that stock's going from 142 to 225, one of the best performers out there. I think Clorox has an opportunity to do the exact same thing here, but that's not all. See, we also got some good news from the analyst day that I think no one noticed because everyone was laser-focused on the number cuts. For example, the company rolled out a new long-term strategy with new long-term forecasts. They're talking about 2 to 4% net sales growth, 25 to 50 basis points of operating margin expansion, and copious free cash flow generation. The issue here is that most analysts just don't believe Clorox can do it. They don't think you can hit the targets. They're, they're really doubting. But I like the sound of the new plan. They want to invest heavily in the brands and innovation to differentiate their products from all that private label competition out there. That makes sense to me. If Clorox can actually deliver on these goals, the stock deserves to go much higher. That strategy makes a lot of sense to me, even if Clorox doesn't seem to be seeing a lot of benefit from it at the moment. More importantly, Dora seems to have a very good handle on what's been going wrong in the company's most troubled categories, like glad bags. The problem? Clorox raised prices last year when everybody was worried about rising raw costs. Then raw costs came back down. Most of the competitors left prices unchanged. In response, retailers have been punishing Clorox by giving them fewer points of distribution. That's the problem. And Doris says he's working with those retailers to get that distribution back. I think he's going to succeed at that. Oh, and the company also mentioned that they're rolling out a line of Burt's Bees personal care. I really, really like this. Where's my Burt's Bees stuff? Just a second. I, of course, don't have any Burt's Bees stuff. That's my bad. Um, and that's going to be the Burt's Bees will be actually I have some in my bag. Not this kind, though. It's going to be infused with cannabidiol or CBD. And I think it will be a big hit because it will be the first truly national trusted brand to offer cannabis infused bombs and salves. And that's huge. I mean, right now, Lord Jones is the big brand. Most people don't know Lord Jones, but it, 
Who doesn't know Burst Bees after all the money that Quark's put behind it? Finally, it's worth pointing out that Quark's has been through this before. In 2016, the stock got hammered based on worries that the environment was too promotional and the private label competition too fierce. The stock bottomed at 110 on November 10th of 2016. Five months later, it's 138. We saw the same darn thing at the beginning of the last year, too. The stock plunged to 113 in April of 2018. Everyone fretted. Quartz was a broken stock. Boom, 167. Bottom line, when I see this kind of pullback in Clorox, I don't think sell. I think buy. Although there might be more downside before it bottoms. But Ben O'Dora is an excellent CEO who's more than proven himself, which is why he's, I'm willing to stick my neck out and recommend putting a small position of cannabidiol on my, uh, putting some Clorox in your portfolio, and then I think, you know what, buy more if it pulls back. Because look what's coming. Cannabis under Burt's B's name. You tell me that won't be the bomb. <laughs> B-A-L-M-B-O-M-B. And hey, you know what? They're paying you to wait with a 2.8% yield. Let's go to Dan in Illinois. Dan! Booyah, Wizard of Wall Street. First time, long time. From All right. Cornfields of Illinois. Thank you. Well, I'm in the house, hey, I'm in the house of pain with Ollie's Bargain Outlet. Yeah. Can you give me a reason why I not have my own closeout sale on Ollie's? You know what? I'm going to have to tell you to stick with Ollie's. I mean, Ollie's really did bomb. It did not deliver the right number. Uh, I do like, if, remember, I like either off-price or online. I think Ollie's can come back. Chapel Trust, though, likes Burlington much more. Uh, and what we really like is the fact that we found some bird's bees. And it's the bomb. Bomb. I always say better late than never, frankly. Looking for a beauty and the bleach? Look no further than Clorox. Uh, kids at home, do not drink this. I think you're getting a buying opportunity. Much more mad money. Uh, with 10-year treasury slumping, you might be wondering if it's time to invest in REITs. Online potential plays that are still available in the space because it's been fantastic. Then stocks soared after today's jobs report. But tonight I'm offering up a list of plays that could be too cheap to ignore even after the roar. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus, special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. What in the 
world's going on over at Stitch Fix, the online styling service. It's like having a personal shopper who sends you clothes and accessories you might like on a regular basis. When Stitch Fix reported on Tuesday night, things actually looked grim. Not to me. I read it. I thought I liked it, but the quarter was solid. Guidance was viewed as disappointing by the analyst community. The company told us they planned to invest heavily in the business, which uh, would cause an earnings hit. So the stock tumbled 10% on Wednesday. But then something weird happened. Stitchfix started rebounding, and rebounding like crazy. Yesterday, it rallied 4.3%. Today, it tacked on another 5.1%. Darn thing actually had an up week. What happened? I think investors reassessed the quarter and recognized that the bearish analysts had the mentality of mayflies. People may have freaked out that Stitchfix is investing to grow the business, but that's exactly what you want from a growth stock. I also like the new direct buy functionality, which lets customers directly purchase items from the company's website rather than just getting them as part of a subscription package. They're not spending more out of desperation and saturation, as the analysts seem to apply. They're doing it to build long-term relationships with their clients, maybe even around the globe. Could this be worth buying here? Let's take a closer look with Katrina Lake. She's the founder and CEO of Stitch Fix. Learn more about the quarter and where the company's headed. Ms. Lake, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you, Katrina. Have a seat. Okay, so uh, you are at the crossroads, I think. Uh, There are people who seem to want you, after a a really good run, to start reaping, harvesting. And then there's you. And you want to take over the world. I prefer people want to take over the world or what, what I guess what we call it, a significant revenue growth at scale. How about this dichotomy, what people want you to do and what you want to do? Yeah, I think, I mean, we're, we have the benefit of being profitable. We've been profitable for five years. And so we um, are you know, both a growth stock. We've been growing 26% year over year the last two years consecutively. Last year, if you um, take out the 53rd week, it's 26%. Um, and at the same time, we're profitable. And so we have the luxury of being able to make these decisions of do we want to reinvest in the business. And last year, we reinvested in the business by opening up the UK, opening up kids, um, all while still being profitable and driving growth. And this year, we see a lot of opportunities to invest in our digital product, to invest in data science, um, to continue to, to kind of plant those foundational elements so, to drive more growth in the future. Well, talk about the digital science plus the personal touch in, in your combination of both, particularly for someone like me who may not know exactly what to wear. Uh, uh, my stepdaughter goes to a new company. She goes to EMY, wants to know what to wear. I, I can't help her. You can yeah, and I mean, that's the glory of being able to have this recommendation and stylist interface that we have. And so today, our clients can sign up, let us know a little bit about themselves, what they're looking for, that they started a new job. Um, and then we will have a stylist who has these amazing tools and algorithms that um, are really predictive around what people are going to like and what people aren't going to like, that then we can ship a box to your daughter that uh-huh. she can try on at home and buy what she wants, send back what she doesn't want. And then what we talked about in this last earnings, which is really exciting, is that we're starting to think about how we can make that personalization and make those recommendations something that actually consumers can engage with directly. Now, how did you come up with this idea? Candidly, as an older person, I said, well, I go to the department store, I buy the clothes. You seem to recognize the zeitgeist. That's not what people want anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think people want to be able to shop in a way that is totally personalized to them and reflects them as an individual. And I think there have been decades of retail where um, we're looking at brands that are saying, this is the it thing and everybody must buy this. And people just want to be um, figuring out what their own personal style is and recognized um, for who they are. And so this is a service that really listens to that and then also helps to be able to understand what might work well based on what we know about others. And so, you know, I think this is a model that both is the convenience of e-commerce, but Mm -hmm. has that personal touch of what you talk about in a department store, of somebody who could get to know you and somebody who could make recommendations directly to you. Um, and we really marry the best of both worlds there. Now, you did have to deal with uh, China tariffs. You were very uh, abject that this could have a material impact on your bottom line. 
Yeah, I think the tariffs that we've had to date um, don't impact us. The ones that are being contemplated right. now potentially could. Um, but, you know, I think there's a few things. Like, one, we, we've been focused, actually, even before this whole tariff thing came up, we've been focused around diversifying away from China. And so we have partners in other countries. We have other countries of origin. Um, and then secondly, you know, we're a partner of choice for our vendors. Like, our brands, like I'm wearing Rebecca Minkoff or Vince, and these are brands that are really excited to work with us. And we're a full-price channel. We're delivering growth for them. And so, um, you know, I think we, our perspective is that we'll see the brands take up, I think, some of that take up some of that cost and currency definitely helps them a little bit. Um, and then the algorithmic component of our business is also helpful because there might be product categories where, you know, like there might be less price elasticity mm-hmm. than others if we're forced to make that choice. Now, uh, you got a chance to meet some of our staff and uh, they were telling me before you came in that uh, a lot of rent runway people and rent runway is kind of shut down for now because of uh, of demand. Uh, there's a high quality problem, uh, not public company. You must also periodically have this same issue because there is a growth level that you are having that is really kind of shocking still after all the years you've been in business. Yeah, I mean, the, it, it's, it's a high-growth business. It's a highly operational business. I mean, we have stylists that are styling fixes. We have distribution centers across the country. We carry our inventory. And so, you know, there's a, there's a heavy operational component of it. Um, our CEO and president was the CEO of Walmart.com before he joined us, <laughs> so and he's cool. been with me for right. seven years now. Right. And so we're really lucky to have kind of built some world-class infrastructure in that way. But, um, but it's definitely something as a growth company that we're always managing, of like, how do we manage our market? and our client acquisition and also our inventory and our growth so that they're really moving in lockstep so that we can be delivering great client experiences and also recognizing the operational complexity of our model. Okay, can you talk to me about the uh, IPO process? We have a lot of junk that's come in public, frankly. A lot of companies that have, they just so, we're going to have growth at scale, but they're not profitable. And they don't have any, any uh, no plans to be profitable, like the WeWork deal that was scrapped. That was good. Just talk about your uh, process, your thought process about the IPOs, and where you think we are in this kind of weird time, frankly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I didn't have the privilege of being unprofitable for as many years and as unprofitable as many of these companies have. And, um, you know, in some ways I'm envious because it was really hard for us to get profitable. And we built a billion dollar business with you know, less than 20 million in capital is what we used to build that. And so, um, you know, we, we know what it's like to really make every single dollar count. Um, and I think, you know, what we're seeing here is that we're seeing people are starting to act a little more rational in the market. Right. And, and I like that because, you know, we've been profitable. We've been profitable for five years. Years, we look at everything from an ROI focus. And so, um, you know, I think that sentiment that we're seeing in the market, I see is probably positive for our model. Oh, I totally agree. Now, one of the things that we've talked about before, the concept of the uh, closes landfill. You're the antidote to that, aren't you? Yeah, we really think so. I mean, a couple, like we, our whole business, we look at it all in terms of how do we make sure we promote sustainability and equality in our business? And so we can talk about it on both of those dimensions. But um, a couple things on the on the challenges with apparel mm-hmm. is like, one, like we are not fast fashion. We never have been fast fashion. Right. Like the vast majority how did of what you know we sell. Fast fashion? I, we, and we, five years ago, people used to ask us, like, what is our what, response to fast you, fashion? Are we going to do it? And now I think it's like it's really firm ground to stand on and we're so proud of it. Um, and what we sell are like jeans that you're going to wear over and over, blazers that are going to be your go-to things. Um, these are not disposable clothes. Um, and our business model, we use data to buy the right product, get it to the right client, and that in and of itself, we turn our inventory over six times a year. We've um, we've delivered better gross margins, lower clearance. All of that just means that our whole business model is focused on how can we buy less things, get them to the right people, and, and make the clothes the meaningful things that we love every day in our lives and not things that are going to 
end up in the trash. Now, uh, you are the youngest female founder of, of an IPO. You are a very important role model to everyone out there. You know I feel that way from the first time we met. Uh, zeitgeist, what it means? Um, I'm really proud of it. I think I, I used to shy away from the label of a woman. I was no. like, I just want to be a CEO. I didn't want to pin you down on the no, no. I don't think I did that. But honestly, like now I really embrace it because I recognize how important it is. And like I get messages on Instagram. I get people coming up to me. And I just like it means so much to me that I can help open up possibility for others. And, you know, when I was growing up, I had no idea I wanted to be a CEO. I had no idea I wanted to be a tech CEO. And like, why would I have thought that? Because there weren't examples of that around me. And so now I'm really proud of that, and I really wear it as like a proud badge now. Um, and so I appreciate I appreciate you recognizing that too. Well, you deserve all the accolades. You got a great company. Thank, oh, thank you, so you very much. much. Thank okay, you for having that's me. That's Katrina Lake, founder and CEO of Stitch Fix. Love to put them back on my Mad Money hat. Get it under twenty. It's a pretty good deal. Mad Money's back after the break. Whenever interest rates plummet, as they have, investors fall in love with high-yielding dividend stocks all over again. So you'd expect the Real Estate Investment Trust to catch fire here, with the benchmark 10-year Treasury supporting a pitiful 1.52% yield. The REITs tend to pay spectacular dividends, and these dividends look a lot more attractive when the bond market's giving you next to nothing. Sure enough, when you look at the 31 REITs in the S&P 500 as of late, late night, get this. They're up almost 23% for the year on average. That is some phenomenal return, 23%. But, and this is a very big but, the REIT space is not going up in unison. Not all real estate investment trusts are created equal. Some are a lot more equal than others. Something like Equinix, the fast-growing data center REIT, is up 63% for the year, while the mall-based research is down 32%. Still, most REITs have done pretty well. 25 to 31 are up double digits. Well, four are roughly flat, lagging the market substantially, and two are down. And it's a pair, of course, of retail REITs, Mason Rich and Simon Property Group. Even though, by the way, Simon Property Group is incredibly well run. doesn't matter. It's the milieu. So tonight I want to show you what's working in this space and what isn't, because some of these REITs are absolutely worth owning here, as long as you understand the secular themes that have taken control of this group, and they're not just based on declining rates. That's the real strength. So let's take them sub, subsector by subsector starting with the healthcare REITs. Now, here I'm talking about Welltower, HCP, and Ventas. On average, the healthcare REITs are up an astonishing 23, 29%, 20%. This is, this is the third best performing cohort. It shows you how good these cohorts are, that 29% makes them third. Why? Because these three stocks are all riding the same powerful secular trend. It's an aging population. We're approaching the point where older baby boomers are starting to move into senior living facilities, uh, something Welltower, HCP, and Ventas are happy to supply. Welltower is the best performer, and HCP is only a couple percent behind them. Still, if I had to pick just one healthcare REIT, I'd go with the biggest. I'd go with Ventas, which also owns medical office buildings, hospitals, research labs. Why? Because I think Ventas' CEO, Deb Kafaro, is one of the best in the business. Stock still has the great yield, 4.3%. It trades at a reasonable 19 times Funds from operation per share. That's their, uh, that's the metric that people use. And I'll tell you what I really, one of the things I really like about it is it's got, it's a big cap stock. And that means uh, institutional money can still pour into it. Next, how about the lodging REITs? Now, there's only one of them in the S&P 500. It's called Host Hotels and Resorts, but it's emblematic of the group. Host Hotels has been kind of a dud. It's down very slightly for the year. Makes sense. The whole lodging industry is being disrupted right now by Airbnb and its imitators, VRBO. In short, the, spe- the secular theme here 
is going against the traditional hotel business. So you probably don't want to buy a REIT that owns uh, hotels. There's no real spur. All right, now, you've you got better options, like, say, the industrial REITs. Oh, wow, these are incredible. Uh, there are only two of them in the S&P, Prologis and Duke Realty, but they've been terrific performers, up an average of nearly 39%. Prologis leading the way. We've had them on. They're brilliant. Now, Prologis is a name that we've recommended many, many times. Uh, this is a REIT that owns logistics and fulfillment center properties. Basically, it's the backbone of e-commerce. Last year, Prologis made a major acquisition, snapping up DCT Industrial Trust for $8.5 billion. That was another stock that we liked very much, and it's really paid off. Now, this one's up more than 45% year-to-date. You see the warehouses along the interstates all over the country. What a great business. How about Duke? Well, we're less familiar with this one, candidly, but it owns industrial properties like state-of-the-art bulk warehouses and modern distribution centers, similar to Prologis. The one problem with these industrial REITs, they've run so much that their dividends have made, created some pretty paltry yields, average 2.5%. All right, how about the office REITs? Group is interesting because there are clear haves and have-nots. While the office REITs are up an average of 13%, there's a pretty wide range. Alexandria Real Estate is up 34%. Boston Properties, 14%. Bernardo only up 2 SL Green only up 1%. And remember, a lot of these companies, again, are really well run, but it's a secular theme. The have-nots are the traditional commercial real estate owners. Bernardo and SL Green are in a tough spot because we built way too much office space in many major cities at a point at a time when uh, technology has made it easier than ever for people to work from home. That's one reason that WeWork deal imploded. And it doesn't help that WeWork has basically stopped signing new leases in a desperate effort to cut costs. That could have a ripple effect across the commercial real estate space. Not really clear how it will happen, but you keep hearing it over and over. Boston properties facing the same problems, but it's a more focused company with properties in just Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, and Los Angeles. While the stock's held up, fine. Ah. Not here, please. So what's this Alexandria Real Estate doing differently? We've had them on. Well, they're specialized. They own office space for universities, commercial research facilities, and life sciences centers, like their beautiful complex just off the FDR Highway in New York. That's why they pulled away from the pack. Although, like the other big winners, you're getting a little bit less here, 2.6% yield. Now, you've got the residential REITs. Get this, up an average of 28%. At first, that surprised me. But it makes sense. These companies are capitalizing on the relative poverty of millennials who can't afford to buy their own homes. Even homebuilders like Taylor Morrison are getting into the build-to-rent space. There are a bunch of these residential REITs, and if I had to go pick one, I'd always go with the one I keep coming back to, Avalon Bay, which focuses on a handful of major metropolitan areas with extremely tight job markets, high wages, and impossibly expensive real estate. Think New York, think Brooklyn, California, and the Pacific Northwest. Then there are the retail REITs all over the map, up just 8% for the year. Some big winners like Kimco and Realty Income, as well as some big losers like Simon and Research. Now, the losers, uh, well, they're straightforward. They own shopping malls, and we know that the malls die. Every time you see another retail bankruptcy, like that Forever 21, uh, these stocks get rocked. Forever 21 it happens to be Simon's seventh largest client. So how did Kimco manage to rally 39% for the year? How did Realty Income run up 23%? Simple. They're not mall REITs. They're shopping center REITs. People used to bet against Kimco all the time on this. The difference being that shopping centers are mostly mixed-use spaces in big population centers. A lot of them strip malls. People like that. Pick things easy to get in and get out. Finally, you've got a bunch of weird specialized REITs. The data center names have caught fire this year. Equinix up 63%. Digital really up 21%. The cell tower REITs, wow. 
I mean, unbelievable. Here it's American Tower, Crown Castle. We've had American Tower on a lot. Uh, Crown Castle, SBAC. We've had SBAC on, too. they got to have a lot more upside, by the way. 5G approaches. We need more, more and more bandwidth. I'm also impressed that a couple of storage REITs are up more than 20% for the year. Extra space and public storage. That's where retired baby boomers put their stuff when they retire and downsize. Bottom line, the real estate investment trusts have been roaring. And if you're looking for income, you could do a lot worse than owning some of these. However, you got to be careful to avoid the pitfalls because some of these names, like the mole owners, are total houses of pain. As for the biggest winners, they're trading more like growth stocks than REITs, which, by the way, is fine by me. That money's back in for break. It is time! <laughs> And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skate down over the lightning round. Let's start with Ian in Virginia. Ian. Hey, Kramer. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. I just wanted to know how you think Nike will perform through this market volatility, considering it's so close to all-time highs. Should uh, I buy right now? Goes higher. Why? Because they have one of the best quarters that I have seen in ages. And my congratulations to Mark Parker, who will not come on the show, and it's beginning to really break my heart. Robin in Florida, Robin! Hi, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. I have been researching stocks that have high growth potential and are undervalued okay. to roll over from my traditional IRA in hopes of beefing up my small Roth. All right. Three weeks ago, I bought HMI. I hope I'm not crazy. No, it's my device company. Remember, there's only one device company in the whole wide world that's worth owning, and that is Apple. So even though I know your stock is very low dollar amount, Apple's a better buy. How about Steve in Jersey? Steve. Booyah, Jim. How are you? I am good, Steve. How about you? Good, good. I'm calling about a company that sold 54 billion parts in fiscal year 2019. Just signed three financed expansion agreements where the customers gave them $72 million to expand and guaranteed to purchase okay. 33% of the ad capacity okay. from that expansion. The company is only trading at six times earnings and just started a dividend last year. Right. The company is Kemet out of Fort Lauderdale. Kemet is incredibly undervalued. I don't really get it. I think it's just way too cheap. I think it is a... Riley in Colorado. Riley. Jim, thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. So my question is Haynes Brands. With their acquisitions of Bali and the fast-growing Champion brand and their plans to expand those further into China and other locations, you think that's a worthy investment? I have not liked the textile business. I am not going to go there. I know it's got a good yield. I know it's a good company. I just need growth. I want growth. Let's go to David in Texas. David! Hey, Jim. Booyah from Texas. Happy happy Friday there. Oh, thank you, buddy. What's going on? Had a quick question, man. I picked up uh, a few shares of uh, ENPH in pays about um, three weeks ago during a sweet dip, and I was wondering, um, thinking about holding a long position and adding during the dips. What you think about that? Okay, Enphase is a company that a lot of people are short. They're betting that it can't last. It's in solar power modules. I say it's incredibly speculative, but if people want to buy solar, I'm never going to discourage anybody from doing it. And that ladies and inclusion of the lightning round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. 
Daniel in Pennsylvania. Daniel! Daniel? Yes? Rock, Chuck, Jayhawk, Jim. Okay, I love the Jayhawks. Always been a Jayhawk fan. Ever since Wilt. You killed it. I'm digging to the broker. Can we do a week that was? Okay, Mad Money is... 60 Minutes is back after the break. Colonel Mustard in the library with the knife! The lightning round! Stick him. Cheap. Buy, buy, buy. Or expensive. Sell, sell, sell. In this market, that's what you need to ask yourself when you're looking at a stock with an incredibly low price-to-earnings or P.E. multiple. So many talking heads, particularly those who sat out this amazing bull run, well, they feel the need to tell you how expensive this market is. They're typically looking at the price-to-earnings multiples of stocks like Church & Dwight or Coca-Cola, Clorox, which you covered earlier. Or they go even bigger and they say, hey, Kramer Family Fave, Okta, Workday, ServiceNow, Coupa, Zscaler, RingCentral, Zendesk to name some that come to mind instantly. I respect that. I'm not saying those stocks are cheap. They're, they're, they're very expensive. But right now, you can find a tremendous number of household names that aren't expensive at all. In fact, they're total bargains as long as we don't have a recession. And then all bets are off for some of these. First, the automakers. Ford sells for six times next year's earnings. Jim, five. That's so cheap, it's frightening. When you see this kind of ultra-low multiple, it tells you that investors believe we're headed for a recession, plain and simple. Perhaps within a couple of quarters, we get a recession, the earnings will fall apart, and these stocks will turn out to be a lot more expensive than they currently look. In Ford's case also, its dividend, bountiful 6.8%, would be presumed to be cut. That high yield is another warning sign telling you something's got to give. If there's no recession, Ford GM could easily be great buys here. So are they cheap or are they expensive? Too hard to tell, at least for now. They could be the ultimate value traps. Another example is Micron, the commodity ch- chip maker. I've said over and over again that Micron's the key to this, to this tech market because it's, it reported a really good quarter, but then it gave disappointing guidance for the next quarter, albeit not for the full year. The company has a gigantic buyback, which clearly kicked in when the stock pulled back to the low 40s earlier this week. Right now, Micron's trading at just seven times next year's earnings estimates. Just like with Ford and GM, that means Wall Street believes the estimates are too high. The smart money says the earnings will collapse in 2020. I'm not so sure. I think you can start building a position here every time it goes below 40, 41, but the stock might pull back even to the high 30s and then just got to buy more. What else? How about this? Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo are at 8 and 11 times next year's earnings respectively. Now, that's incredible. Goldman's the premier investment bank, at least if you're still trying to get a job in investment banking. Well, it's also the bank behind the Apple card, even if Apple in its advertising says there's no bank behind the card. Technically, they're right. In reality, though, I think it's a multi-billion dollar business for Goldman, maybe worth as much as high single digit billions by next year at this time. Either way, eight times earnings is an awfully low multiple, and that's one of the reasons why my Chapel Trust owns the stock. You can follow along why I do by uh, subscribing to the ActionLawyersPlus.com club. Wells Fargo used to be the best run bank in America. Now it's anything but. However, they just got a new CEO, Charlie Scharf, late of Visa and Bank of New York, who's known for his love of technology, his discipline, and expense control. If you ask me, those are the three things Wells has been the worst at. I think both of these cheap bank stocks could be huge by the end of the year, 
yes, I think they're going to go higher, certainly into next year. Now, finally, there's the retailers. These are tough. Kohl's sells for nine times earnings. Macy's sells for five times earnings. Kohl's has a 5.7% yield. Macy's has a ridiculous 10% yield. Again, both stocks are trading like we're going into a recession, if not in the case of uh, Macy's, a retail brick-and-mortar depression. I think the market's judging all these stocks way too harshly. Those valuations are right if the economy's about to fall off a cliff, but they're very wrong if business is just going to be okay. It's dealer's choice, people. You're the dealer. Stick with Kramer. Trade talks next week. Don't be as excited. The hype should not be bought into. I don't know how well they'll go. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mid Money. I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you Monday. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus, special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.